CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Phase zero, I think, has less risk initially. Early phases of ETH2 are designed to be almost entirely decoupled from the existing Ethereum chain. It's essentially a bootstrapping phase. And so although I'd say phase 1.5 is a much simpler technical task, that's where most of the actual risks are. Like you want to get that thing right no matter what. And fortunately, it is simpler. But you know, in terms of risks to Ethereum, most of the risk is at that point. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Developer Perspectives, Ethereum 2.0 from Coindesk Podcasts. I'm Christine Kim, a Coindesk Research Analyst, and in this series, we'll be discussing the hotly anticipated Ethereum 2.0 upgrade. We'll chat with the folks inside the Ethereum developer community to take a look behind the scenes at what comes next. For this episode, we're going to be talking about one of the major goals after Ethereum 2.0 launch, and that is migrating the existing Ethereum blockchain into the new Ethereum 2.0 ecosystem. For today's show, I'm joined by Ethereum 2.0 researcher at the Ethereum Foundation, Danny Ryan. Hi, Danny. Hey, how's it going? Good. Great to have you. Glad to be here today. Awesome. I'm also joined by Liz Steininger, the CEO of blockchain security company Least Authority. Least Authority has conducted several public audits of Ethereum 2.0 code. Its most comprehensive one was released in March and reviewed all the specs related to Ethereum 2.0 phase zero launch. Great to have you on the show, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here too. In the last two episodes of this series, we discussed in detail what users could expect right after Ethereum 2.0 goes live. We talked about staking and validating, really the only two activities a user will be able to engage in during the first phase of Ethereum 2.0 called phase zero. On this episode, I want to discuss what will happen in the near future after phase zero, namely phase 1.5 and beyond when it's not just a subset of Ethereum users interacting with the Ethereum 2.0 environment, but all of them. Danny, can you give our listeners a brief overview of the current plan as it stands today of how users and dApps on Ethereum will migrate to Ethereum 2.0? Yeah, absolutely. The framing of ETH1 and ETH2, ETH1.0, ETH2.0, I think is a, a little bit of a, a misnomer and implies a sequentiality. Certainly it is an upgrade, but it implies this kind of like deprecation of one for the other. That is not necessarily, that's not really the, the framing and not really the, the path. The path here is in phase zero, what we've built is what we call the beacon chain. This is kind of like the system level chain 
that handles the core consensus for, for what we call ETH2. It is the chain where the validators live, is where they are rewarded, is where they, they are penalized. And it's kind of the scaffolding upon which shard chains are built and plugged into and kind of unified under the same system. And in ETH2, ETH we have the plan is to have many of these shard chains, each with a similar capacity to the Ethereum mainnet chain today, but all of them running in parallel under the same consensus. So the migration from ETH1 to ETH2 is actually a hot swap of Ethereum's current proof-of-work consensus for that of the proof-of-stake consensus of the Beacon chain. Meaning the chain that is built by the miners today at a point in time would instead be built by the proof-of-stake validators that live in the Beacon chain. So the, the goal right now and what we've been working on in, in demos and proof-of-concepts of this migration is that most of what Ethereum is today continues forward uninterrupted, but is instead unified kind of into this sharded proof-of-stake system. And just to follow up to that for our listeners who don't know what a shard is, could you give a brief overview on what you mean by moving Ethereum into a shard of Ethereum 2.0? Yes, yes. So in traditional database systems, there's this notion called sharding. So once your databases get large enough and have a lot of uh, activity happening on them, it can make sense to divide them into like sub databases. What we've done in Ethereum 2.0 is instead of having uh, just a larger single chain, which has issues with uh, centralization and, and, and bandwidth and things, instead we've created a number of these blockchains in parallel, each called a shard uh, from the traditional kind of database nomenclature. And so in Ethereum 2.0, there will be many of these chains operating in parallel, and one of which will be the current Ethereum chain, what people often call ETH1, will instead be a shard, will be one of many of these blockchains under the same consensus mechanism. Huh, gotcha. Liz, in least authorities audit of Ethereum 2.0 specs, one of your recommendations, or I should say the recommendation of least authority, was that developers fund additional security audits in preparation for what Danny is describing as this sharded environment where ETH1 will live as one of the many shards. Why was it an important recommendation that additional security audits be funded for the migration? And what would you possibly need from Danny and his team to do one of these audits for the plan that he just described? Well, um, to your first question, in terms of why we would why we would recommend multiple audits or additional audits well i mean this ethereum 2.0 the proof of stake um, switch with ethereum 2.0 is as far as i know as far as the world knows is going to be the largest implementation of a proof of stake blockchain out there and so we don't all we, none of us really know what kind of happens at this level of usage with a with a blockchain um that's proof of stake like this. So uh, in production, things can happen very differently. Uh, so you know, we looked at things when we reviewed the specification. We looked at things from a uh, you know, theoretical perspective of what we what we could envision happening in certain scenarios. You know, edge cases, certain incentives, different kinds of issues that can come up. But of course, in in reality, things can look a little bit different. As the Ethereum community prepares, we we recommended that audits of certain aspects 
be done to, in addition to just, you know, kind of see as these things further develop, you know, again, looking at a specification in that early phase, things can change as the pieces of it, the components get built out. I'm sure that you didn't have all of the information that was required back in March or even earlier when you were taking a look at the Ethereum 2.0 specifications. But what would you need now, say, from Danny and his team, if you wanted to do a full-on audit of this new sharded environment for Ethereum 2.0 and also this hot swap of uh, the consensus protocol for Ethereum now to the proof-of-stake one for Ethereum 2.0? We haven't talked too much about the specific question, I think, but I, I think code code is uh, the next step usually. Um, so if there, the specification that we looked at, um, we were looking at the, the theoretical aspects of, of, of it. And then, I mean, there was there are some components that um, are built out already and being reviewed. And then, yeah, as the, as the sharded blockchains um, or the shards that are these separate blockchains are being built, then yeah, have those audited at that point in time. Code being one of the primary requirements, I'm sure. Of course, developers right now, Ethereum 2.0 developers right now are focusing on launching the beacon chain, getting Ethereum 2.0 up and running. But Danny, how close would you say the entire team is to actually freezing code specifications for the ETH to ETH 2.0 migration? Um, how close are you guys to beginning the final software build for phase of Ethereum 2.0 development? This unification of the systems uh, we call phase 1.5. Uh, between phase zero and phase 1.5 is uh, what we call phase one, which is the addition of a number of shard chains to the beacon chain, just as, as data and not as, um, and we can get into that if you want, but not, not the migration of ETH1 into ETH2. And once the sharded system is then created, the uh, ETH1 would be integrated into ETH2. And so in terms of the specifications for phase one, which is the major requirement for phase 1.5. That stuff is, the specifications exist, they are a couple of implementations exist, and a, a lot of testing and kind of refinement is happening right now. I would expect in the next few months for that to probably not be publicly stated as frozen, but in a, a very robust and kind of solid place and have a lot more engineering teams working on actually constructing those specifications. In terms of the 1.5 specifications, these also exist, and uh, if you've been following along, there's a, a demo of a sharded ETH2 with ETH1 chain integrated as one of those shards. And one of the cool things about this is it reuses uh, the same APIs and a lot of the same kind of developer interfaces. And so you can use existing tooling and stuff, and we, we demonstrate using MetaMask on this sharded system. But these specs also exist, but until, the, until phase one is a little bit more built out, I, I don't see these being, quote, frozen. Some of the things that we're working on now that we have the core of these specifications in place are thinking more about that, that precise point of transition. So where at one block, you are a proof-of-work blockchain, and at the next block, you are a proof-of-stake blockchain. These are the things that we're working through. You know, Obviously, the, the, like, the simple there is, okay, you just switch and you you now defer to the validators. But what are some of the negative scenarios that could happen? If there was maybe an attack right then, or if there was a, a deep reorg, right? What kind of stuff do we need to plan for and account for right at that, that point of transition? And as these specs do become more refined and, and we do enter into engagements with third-party auditors and bring in more researchers to think about, some of those, those corner cases are often the, the more interesting points to look into. 
Mm -hmm. These are important considerations. And I like how you framed it, Danny, as building block. The more that phase zero, phase one all becomes fleshed out, I'm sure that the plan for phase 1.5 and beyond also will benefit from that kind of base and and foundation. Mm Liz, Least Authority, as I had mentioned before, had reviewed Ethereum 2.0 code back in March, or at least published the public audit back in March. Can you describe some of the early attack vectors that the company had discovered in the code then? And do you foresee any of the same ones along the same veins cropping up during the build for phase 1.5 and beyond? So, um, yeah, our team looked at the phase zero specification. So, yeah, to, Dan- to Danny's point, too, that there's more than just code that, that needs to be reviewed in the future, too. It's, uh, you know, the looking at these different phases specifications, too. Phase zero, in looking at the specification then, there's a, I think that there's a lot of different types of attacks that can happen. But also because we're looking at, like, this early stage then I think that that's why you can see more as they go through the phases and um, address certain issues in different ways. And you know, I expect that a lot of these will be become more minimal. So I think it's quite natural that at this early stage, you know, you see like a lot more different kinds of creative types of attacks that could potentially happen again because theoretical at this early stage. And then as yeah, as they get addressed with various um, things through the phases, then you would expect those to minimize. But yeah, like Danny said too, that there can be some really interesting edge cases. And that's also what is really important for all of us to to be considering as we look at it at this point in time. As much as I do like talking about the edge cases and what could potentially, you know, break the Ethereum 2.0 network, et cetera, et cetera. I do want to spend some time talking about what Ethereum 2.0 is supposed to bring to users, the benefits it's supposed to give because I think that's also an important consideration for the motivation behind why developers are even taking this risk of moving to a new proof of stake network. So Danny, once Ethereum is fully migrated to Ethereum 2.0, can you talk about some of the changes that users and dApp developers will be able to notice immediately about the new network? So for one, we believe the security properties of a well-designed proof-of-stake network can be greater than that of uh, a proof-of-work network um, from a a few different angles. One is in the event that there is an attack, the attacker cannot repeatedly conduct the attack over and over again because of a mechanism um, in the protocol called slashing. So the money used to conduct the attack is burned. Whereas in proof-of-work, once you have 50%, 51% of the network, you can attack over and over and over again unless the mining algorithm is changed and you brick all the miners' hardware. So the, the migration provides enhanced security benefits. It also increases the ability to light client verify across the system. There's been a lot of special considerations taken into account when designing the system so that light clients can become a first-class citizen. A developer, instead of running an entire full node, might just run portions of the beacon chain and make proofs and things about certain types of accounts in various shards. And so benefit of reducing the, um, the overhead to participate in the system. But in terms of the actual developer experience, the primary motivation for my, this migration is increased throughput, is to the, increase the, uh, ultimately the amount of activity that can happen on Ethereum. Um, if you look at any of the gas estimators like ETH gas station, I think Etherscan has one. You've seen gas prices go from 
in the range of 1 to 20 GUA to in the range of 100 to 500 GUA in the past month. And this is, you know, there's tons of interesting DeFi activity going on, but all the all this activity is becoming very expensive to conduct on chain. So the benefits that we see in this migration is to move the system from the capacity of one consumer machine, you know, about what the, the capacity of say Ethereum today or Bitcoin can today can handle is about the, you know, the capacity of a, a standard laptop or something to N, to many of them, where N is you know, 64 in the, in the 64 to 100 range. So we want to increase the layer one capacity of the system by approximately 100x. And so the benefits that we hope to bring to developers is more capacity, cheaper transactions, and a, a better environment for users to interact with and, and build dApps on. The, the goal is also in this phase 1.5 merger is to reduce the friction of the merger. And for the, although there will be enhanced capabilities in this new system for dApps, existing contracts and wallets to just continue to exist uninterrupted in this new environment. Although we do expect enhancements beyond that, there are things that developers can add on over time rather than forcefully have to address at the point of merger. Transaction fees. I feel like that one's also a hot topic now. So cheaper fees, I'm sure people's ears just perked up like, when, when? Yeah. I mean, we've been feeling the pain since CryptoKitties, right? And was that 2017, 2018? That was the first like massive spike in usage of Ethereum. And we've seen over the past couple of years, just more and more dApps being developed, more things interconnect and, and uh, more use cases happening. And so, yes, transaction fees, layer one capacity is a, is a huge driving motivation. Yeah. And you had started off your benefit answer, Danny, with, with security benefits. And I, I think that's also one, Liz, I'm wondering if you have further comments you'd like to add to the benefits of moving Ethereum onto Ethereum 2.0, specifically as it relates to security of the network. Was there anything else that you wanted to add to what Danny has, has just said? I mean, I appreciate that the team has put so much effort into making security a priority from the start. And I think that that a larger consideration when it comes to systems that I know that there can be extensive de debates about, you know, what type of approach to a system in, in like in terms of tech, like if it's proof of work or proof of stake that can be more secure. And I think that, you know, from from our perspective, we look at it a little bit more holistically about the way that the design is approached that you could, I mean, one could be more secure than the other based on just how the system is set up. And so the, the security aspect needs to be looked at from the perspective of security by design, thinking about these considerations early on. Yeah, the team, by taking the approach of doing specifications, doing things in phases and addressing security at each of those levels, I think is really important. For example, like in our specification review, like Danny had mentioned about um, slashing, and we had found like a potential attack vector with the, the slashing messages that are going out and how those can get handled. And so um, by, having, by having proof of stake and slashing, you know, a new attack vector is opened, but then you, you, know, you do the analysis, you figure out, okay, well, then how could we mitigate this or remediate this particular attack vector and, and then solve that. So that, that kind of just the thinking about security from, from the very beginning and addressing the issues and thinking all the time about, you know, what are new attack vectors that are opened up by different developments and different changes in the system, I think is the most important part in terms of making it more secure. 
Hey listeners, Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost-effective ways, with the normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions, Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. And speaking of the phases, going back to the different phases of Ethereum 2.0 development, more from a theoretical standpoint, Liz, I'm curious to know, what do you think is riskier, launching Ethereum 2.0 or moving Ethereum onto Ethereum 2.0? Is it phase zero or phase 1.5 that you think holds more risk? Well, we haven't done an analysis on that. On, on the switch. So that's actually a difficult question to answer at this point in time. You know, we did, we did our review of the, the phase zero specification. So yeah. And like I said, I, there, that we, we found risk issues there, but there's time to address them. And that's, that's the important part of also specification review that you have the opportunity to address particular issues before they're actually built into a system. But in terms of the, the switch, yeah, it's kind of hard to assess that since we haven't analyzed it yet. To be determined. Danny, I have you on record also saying that phase zero is going to be one of the most difficult ones, parts of Ethereum 2.0 development to, to do and to get through compared to this huge ginormous task of also moving Ethereum onto Ethereum 2.0 down the line. What are your biggest concerns right now for that future phase? I wanted to weigh in on the previous question and the, the current question. Phase zero, yes. Phase zero, I think, has a lot of the complexity, if not the majority of the complexity of this, this phase rollout. Um, and that's because designing the core of this consensus mechanism, designing it to be able to handle hundreds of thousands of validators across thousands of machines across the world and to come to consensus and finalize things, is, it's a very difficult task. And just putting the, in place the core of this new software is much more difficult than in subsequent phases, which is essentially an extension of the software, an iteration mm. of, the, of what is robust and secure software at that point. So also phase zero is much more complex than I believe a phase 1.5 is, the, this merger. Phase zero, I think, has less risk initially because ETH2, early phases of ETH2 are designed to be almost entirely decoupled from the existing Ethereum chain. It's essentially a bootstrapping phase where this new consensus mechanism and new system is, is bootstrapped in parallel to the old system. And so because of that, 
the early things that we're doing are not risking the activity are not imposing additional risks upon the activity that's happening in the proof of work chain. And so although I'd say phase 1.5 is a much simpler technical task, that's where most of the actual risks are. Like you want to get that thing right no matter what. And fortunately it is simpler, but but that's you know in terms of risks to Ethereum, risks to the system, the ecosystem, community, dApps and things. That's most of the risk is at that point. That's really interesting because I, I, I want to talk about one of the risks as it relates to phase zero launch that I, when I had read about it, had foreseen it possibly having an impact down the road to later phases, phase 1.5 and beyond. So a few weeks ago, the official test network of Ethereum 2.0, the Madasha network, faced a severe outage after almost 80% of validators on the network suddenly vanished. Now, an important and key takeaway from the events of that day, according to many Ethereum 2.0 developers, was the importance of not relying on a single client. Those 80% of validators that had dropped off on August 14th were running the same client software, Prism. Mm -hmm. So Danny, I I expect that the number of people running Ethereum 2.0 software is going to shoot up dramatically after the migration of ETH to ETH 2.0. When this happens, how will developers ensure that a healthy level of client diversity is maintained? That's the $10 billion question. It is, it's difficult. It's difficult to incentivize client diversity. Um, it's very difficult for, especially inside of the protocol, to know. The protocol can't really know what software you're running. It just knows that you are running the protocol. In terms of validators, there are these, what we call anti-correlation incentives, meaning if you're offline, at the same time a lot of people are offline, you stand to lose more money than if you being offline was not correlated with others. And so if you happen to be running a majority client and that has a major outage like we saw, you stand to lose more money than if you were running a minority client that had an outage. Similarly, you know, if you're running on AWS and AWS goes down, 50% of the network is running on AWS, you stand to lose more than if you're running your node at home and your internet goes off for a little bit and you know, it wasn't correlated with others. And so that anti-correlation mechanism, we do hope to incentivize diversity. But unfortunately, that mechanism only really comes into play in tail risk scenarios, meaning in these major outages, in these major um, issues along the network, do you only really feel the pain of making that choice to run the majority client? I have seen a lot of users migrate to some of the other uh, very viable, very robust clients. And there are some standards being put in place on how to make sure you safely migrate between these clients. Clients are creating and adopting standards to be able to transfer your validator keys and your previous messages between clients so that it helps enable choice, um, especially in, in this type of scenario. If it was really easy to switch from, say, Prism to Lighthouse during that incident, we could have resolved the incident probably much, much more quickly. I do hope to see uh, better, better diversity, and I think after that incident, we will. But in terms of once we get to phase 1.5, your guess is as good as mine and what distribution we'll see. I, I think that because out the gate, we have so many very excellent clients that we might see a little bit better distribution than we do with the ETH1 clients today, where it's very much geth dominated. But even then, I, I, I think that we can make some strides on the, the ETH1 clients as well um, and see a better distribution in the next year or so. Liz, what solutions can you possibly offer on this front of increasing client diversity? Oh, this is such a fascinating question and fascinating topic in general, because I think it's a great example of how the security of a system is, is, can be significantly impacted by things that are kind of 
not, not not completely directly within the control of the the core development team, for example, that the idea of how you manage your community to encourage and incentivize, uh, to encourage the development of a variety of clients, and then to also incentivize the the use of those different clients. I think that this is something that a lot of different tech type projects and, and all kinds of industries even struggle with, because I think humans have a natural tendency to centralize um, their usage towards, uh, you know, the popular product. I mean, this is what kind of drives a lot of markets forward is that, you know, people say, oh, yeah, I like this thing, you should use it too. <laughs> and that just happens naturally between people. And so to kind of to, to have to actively counter that, I think is something that's gonna have to be monitored over time. If you don't have like any kind of way to measure that directly, then that also presents a different level of challenge too. So in terms of uh, ideas, I think, it, yeah, like I said, it kind of it comes almost outside of the protocol. Well, I mean, some of it you can do within the protocol, like um, Danny was explaining one type of incentive that you can give, but um, are there other, I think a good question to ask is, are there other types of incentives that protocol developers can provide to the community, to the development community to do, to make more clients and then to the users of those clients? Is there a level of incentivization that can happen there to increase the diversity too? But it is a very, it's a very complicated question, and it's something that I think will probably have different answers at different points as like popularity of particular clients kinds of ebbs and flows over time. I don't expect one third, one third, one third, or one quarter, one quarter, one quarter um, <laughs> across these clients. I do expect there to be disparities, and I do expect them to ebb and flow. Something that's really important to us is early on in Ethereum's history, they had the what we call the Shanghai DOS attacks, where DOS vectors were found in both Geth and in parity clients. And they were both exploited at different times, but neither of them were able to be exploited at the exact same time. Um, and so the network was, was able to stay alive. And so miners maybe were able to swap from one to the other, or um, some were down, but others were up. Um, so we do, we want to at least have baseline percentage of the network, not on a majority client so that we can live through these uh, types of attacks or errors or bugs and things. It's good that you guys got this one out of the way for sure on the test network. Uh, Liz, you had mentioned one of the questions that you're going to be asking, you know, as more details about uh, migration from ETH to ETH 2.0 gets confirmed. But what are some of the other key areas of concern outside of client diversity that you are going to be paying close attention to as development for Ethereum 2.0 progresses? That's a good question, too. I think that when we were looking at the phase zero specifications, you know, some other areas that we were going to, like the P2P networking layer was another one that um, we recommended needed for the review and the ENR system. Also, I think that there was a lot of discussion around the block proposer election system too. And there, there were some interesting potential attacks that, that were discussed there. And, and so I think that this is also a fascinating area to, to work on. <laughs> And that, that we would be interested in, but yeah, also the, the P2P networking layer too. Those seem very interested. To add some color there, the, um, the P2P networking layer is in, in Ethereum today, there's just really kind of like one mesh. You can think of messages, transactions, blocks are, are gossiped and everyone gets them. Whereas in, in ETH2, um, similarly to how we're kind of sharding these blockchains, we have to shard or create sub meshes of the P2P network so that I only I don't have to overload my bandwidth, my uh, computer's bandwidth, listening to all messages about all shards all the time. 
I need to be able to say, I want to listen to this. I want to listen to that. And for messages to be able to be efficiently uh, gossiped to all of the nodes that care about that type of message. And so what we are employing is kind of a relatively sophisticated mechanism to essentially shard the gossip domain. And this isn't something that's been done much on P2P networks before. There's, there's a lot there to both optimize and scrutinize. That also sounds pretty technical, this lib P2P and gossip network. Danny, could you remind us, perhaps in a bit more layman terms, what is left to be discussed and decided about when it comes to phase 1.5 and beyond? Are there any key topics of debate and discussion among developers that have still yet to be kind of worked out? It's really the um, most of what Ethereum is today does not have to change to go into a, a shard in ETH2. Some things do. And so we need to define, we need to make sure we enumerate what those things are and come up with re reasonable decisions on them. So for example, there is an opcode, there's a call you can make within um, an Ethereum smart contract that looks at the proof of work difficulty. But, and there are contracts out there that check the difficulty and do things based upon it. Come phase 1.5, there will be no proof of work. And so there isn't this like native notion of difficulty. And so, you know, does it freeze at the difficulty it was forever or does it go to zero or you know, how does this, how does the opcode uh, handle these changes? And so there's, there's a lot of minor things there. In addition to that, um, in parallel to all of this ETH2 stuff, is what we call the ETH1X uh, research and development. Whereas ETH2 is really focused on upgrading and enhancing the core consensus mechanism of Ethereum, ETH1X is focused more on upgrading the user layer, the transaction layer, the state, the user level state and contract layer. There's a lot going on there and some like semi-radical upgrades happening in that layer. So we need to make sure that both the technicals of phase 1.5, as well as the various timelines uh, happening in parallel to these upgrades, that they're all kind of cohesive. That's the different things that I'm focusing on. It's a lot. <laughs> My last question for both you, Danny and Liz, and Liz would love if, if you could start us off is, should this transition from Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0 go successfully and say, you know, next year I have you guys back on this podcast to talk about the new Ethereum and its whole proof of stake and beacon chain all up and running. What larger ramifications or repercussions do you foresee this migration having on the broader blockchain community? So not just Ethereum, but more broadly, say to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies beyond. What do you think that the repercussions of a move like this, a successful move like this, will have on the industry? Yeah, so I think first, what does success mean in terms of a successful move? Like that's always one of those things to, to, to start out with because I think that it's important. We work on the side of seeing, like trying to find things that are wrong. You know, we try to find attacks. We try to figure out how to break things. And so, you know, always calculating that to expect that the transition could go flawless as in, as in that there's no surprises, no, you know, no things go wrong, I think is not, not a good thing and not, not a, not a good definition of success that, you know, success to, from my personal perspective is also that the entire community gets to learn from the whole industry gets to learn from this experience that, you know, it's a huge undertaking, a lot of effort is going into it. And that there's bound to be some some hiccups, some some bumps in the road, and that 
you know, that that's not that that kind of stuff isn't necessarily a failure, but it's a learning opportunity for for everybody in the industry to see how these things work at such large scale. So for me, that's a little bit different of a definition of success. And in terms of what does it mean for the overall industry? If we can overcome the the bumps in the road that are like undoubtedly going to happen during this kind of like large transition, then I think that shows um, a kind of resiliency to you know to the to the greater world of what blockchain and the cryptocurrency and you know just the development space is capable of. And I think that that shows that this technology and the the people behind it, it's not just for fun or for experiment or just for money. That that there's this idea that if we can, that the tech can hold actual change and that we can, I don't know, we can maybe have a bigger impact on things and, and reach some larger goals. But I think the key is to, to realize that success is something, you know, that's going to include some, some bumps and some failures. Instead of us concentrating those on those as like, oh, you all messed up, you did it wrong. Instead that we say, okay, great. Like, how do we all recover from this and keep moving forward and, you know, continue to help each other out? That's a really good way of framing it. And I'm going to actually add that on for you too, Danny. I mean, what is your definition of success and what impact do you think that that success will have on the broader blockchain cryptocurrency industry? I mean, success for Ethereum 2.0 and success for Ethereum is to provide a scalable decentralized environment. And as I said, decentralized, so, so a scalable yet still decentralized environment. I think a lot of corners are being cut in an attempt to create more scalable decentralized, quote, decentralized systems. And in doing so, actually create a lot of attack vectors, a lot of centralization vectors, uh, a lot of cartelization vectors that we're going to see play out in different environments. But success for Ethereum 2.0, what it means to the broader ecosystem is to demonstrate that you can scale out these systems while uh, retaining a high level of decentralization. Um, and that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we're going for. And I, I think it, when we ship when we complete it will probably change and sculpt the industry. Thank you, Danny and Liz, for chatting with me about the migration of Ethereum to Ethereum 2.0. This has been another episode of Developer Perspectives Ethereum 2.0. For everyone listening, you can find social media links to connect with both Danny and Liz in today's show notes. Once again, I'm Christine Kim, a research analyst at Coindesk. And if you haven't already, please do check out our Ethereum 2.0 explainer report. It's available now and free to download on the Coindesk website. The report features additional commentary from Ethereum developers like Danny and cool visualizations further explaining the dynamics of the network. You can stay up to date with the Coindesk research team and be the first to hear about our new reports, webinars, and definitely new podcast episodes on Twitter by following at Coindesk Data. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Danny and Liz, again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks.